Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Alden Abbott, Senior Research Fellow here at Mercatus, Daniel Crane, the Frederick Paul Firth Senior Professor of Law at the University of Michigan, and Kenneth Elzinga, the Robert C. Taylor Professor of Economics at the University of Virginia. They discuss the connection between the world of antitrust and Christianity, capitalism as a vehicle for good, Protestant moral theology and antitrust policy, Dan and Ken's latest co-authored book chapter, and much more. If you would like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Welcome. I'm Alden Abbott, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today I'm joined by Professors Kenneth Elzinga of the University of Virginia and Dan Crane of the University of Michigan, who will discuss their co-authored essay, Christianity and Antitrust. This essay appears in a new volume on Christianity and Market Regulation, edited by Professor Crane and Samuel Gregg of the Acton Institute coming soon from the Cambridge University Press. This is a fascinating book on an intriguing topic. Before proceeding, a word about our speakers. Professor Kenneth Elzing is Robert C. Taylor Professor of Economics at University of Virginia. He was first recipient of the Cavaliers Distinguished Teaching Professorship at University, a recipient of the Alumni Association's Distinguished Professor Award, the Commonwealth of Virginia's Outstanding Faculty Award, as well as awards in education from the Keenan and Templeton Foundations. In 1992, he was given Thomas Jefferson Award, the highest honor the University of Virginia accords its faculty. Each fall, Professor Elsinger's introductory economics course attracts over a 1,000 students and is the largest class offered at University of Virginia. His antitrust policy seminar, which is taught using the Socratic method, often has a waiting list of two years. Mr. Elzinger's major research interest is antitrust economics, especially pricing strategy and market definition. He has testified in several precedent-setting antitrust cases and was the economic expert for the prevailing parties in three Supreme Court cases, Matsushita, Brook Group, and Legion. By the way, Mr. Elzinger taught me principles of economics and antitrust a few years back. Daniel Crane is the Frederick Paul Firth Senior Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. He served as Associate Dean for Faculty and Research from 2013 to 2016. He teaches contracts, antitrust, antitrust and intellectual property, and legislation and regulation. He previously was a professor at Yeshiva University's Benjamin Cardozo School of Law and a visiting professor at New York University's School of Law and the University of Chicago Law School. In spring 2009, he taught antitrust law on a Fulbright scholarship at the Universidade Católica Portuguesa in Lisbon. Professor Crane's work has appeared in the University of Chicago Law Review, California Law Review, Michigan Law Review, Georgetown Law Journal, and Cornell Law Review, among other journals. He's the author of several books on antitrust law, including Antitrust, The Making of Competition Policy, Legal and Economic Sources, and the institutional structure of antitrust enforcement. Now let's get started. If only for efficiency purposes, I'm going to address each of you by your first name, even though it's maybe a bit awkward for me in that uh, I still think of Ken Elzing as my former professor, although I'm a bit long in the tooth, so I think that maybe allowed me. Uh, on top of that, I recognize that both of you have been professors for many years. However, at Mercatus, we want to be informal. 
Now, Dan, later in this interview, uh, I want to ask you about the new book that you co-edited, Christianity and Market Regulation. But to get us started, let's focus on a chapter in that book you and Ken co-authored, entitled Christianity and Antitrust, a Nexus. My first reaction when I read the title is that this would be a very short paper. Antitrust is about markets and commerce, a secular world. Christianity is about the world of faith. So an obvious question would be, what's the connection? So let me start, Dan, and then I'll ask uh, Ken to chime in. Painting with a broad brush, what's the connection between the world of antitrust and the world of Christianity? Well, Alden, thanks very much for having me on the show, and it's great to be here with Ken, and I've really enjoyed collaborating with him on this chapter and uh, many mutual interests that we have as well. If I think about the trust and my Christian faith, I think about it in various different ways. One is that I hope that my faith touches everything I do. I hope that's true whether I'm a plumber or a nurse or a teacher or an antitrust professor. I hope that my, my faith has relevance for how I conduct myself and how I think about what it is that I do. But being more specific, I also think that Christianity and the Christian tradition have a lot to say about antitrust and its foundational ideas. And that's true in two ways. One is general principles that we find in the Bible and the Christian tradition speak directly to many of the questions that we grapple with in antitrust. But also, I think this has really been neglected in, in, in research and study. There is a longstanding Christian tradition with respect to anti-monopoly. And it's, but it's not like uh, it's an idea to Christians to think from a Christian perspective about the nature of competition and, and market economies. You know, Alden, when I think of the relationship between Christianity and antitrust, it reminds me of Abraham Kuyper, who is sometimes thought of as the Thomas Jefferson of the Netherlands. Uh, Kuyper once remarked that if Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of all. And what I think Kuyper meant is that the Christian faith is not just about Sunday school and singing hymns. Uh, rather, to follow Jesus is to follow him into the marketplace, into the world of money, into the world of commerce. Uh, Jesus actually spoke more about money than he did about prayer. So if that's true, the institution of antitrust shouldn't be immune from the influence of Christian principles. So one way I think about antitrust is that it, it establishes rules for how people pursue money, how they, how they pursue financial gain. So, for example, one biblical principle that's common to the Christian faith and to Judaism is thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal, one of the commandments. So, Alden, when, when you were my student, I used to quote the folk singer Woody Guthrie uh, with the lyrics, some men rob you with a six gun, some rob you with a fountain pen. Now, the problem with that song today is that my students don't know what a fountain pen is, and a lot of them probably don't know what a folk song is. But if you take those lyrics, you might think of antitrust as an endeavor to enhance consumer welfare or prevent consumer welfare from being reduced by people with fountain pens or spreadsheets. So in that sense, antitrust, if it's done right, it isn't always done right, but if it's done right, it squares with the commandment that keeps consumers from being robbed by people with fountain pens, or, or as we might put it, having their economic welfare reduced by what? Any competitive practices. 
So that'd be one way in which I see a connection between what might seem at odds or peculiar relationship of antitrust and the Christian faith. Okay, that's very interesting. So, of course, when people think about business world, they think about something that's been described by some people as evil, capitalism. Now, the economic institution of capitalism has always been criticized and under attack, certainly true today. How do you react to claims that giant business firms and capitalism itself are soulless and harm masses of people? That is, is capitalism, even if somehow regulated by antitrust, at odds with Christian concern for the poor and downtrodden? Dan, let me start with you. Sure. So, yeah, there's a famous quote that's attributed to John Kenneth Galbraith, although it actually goes back before him, really, which is that under capitalism, man exploits man. And under socialism, it's just the opposite. What that goes to for me is that any economic system can be used or exploited uh, for good or for ill. Capitalism, like any other economic system, is only as good as the people who, who run it, the people who make decisions in it. Uh, capitalism is dependent on the moral and ethical behavior of people in the system. So I don't think of capitalism as inherent, inherently exploitative of the poor. I think that in any system, uh, there are people who, who exploit and harm other people. That, As a Christian, that, that goes to me to our, our sin nature, and, and our sin nature is, is present in any system in which we operate. But for me, capitalism holds great potential to be used as a vehicle for good, to uh, to enrich people, to lift people out of poverty, to to enhance freedom and opportunity. Uh, and so, when I think about we see exploitation under capitalism, of course we do. Uh, but I don't put that at the feet of capitalism itself. So, Alden, uh, Dan, and I didn't compare answers or coordinate on this, but I really appreciate uh, his response. I'm going to take a little bit uh, different direction. I think it's complementary to it. I'm going to go back to a book that was very influential in my life some years ago by Michael Novak, who used to be a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And he wrote a book called The Spirit. Notice the terminology here, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. And Novak writes out of a, out of a Roman Catholic tradition. And then Samuel Gregg, who's Dan Crane's co-editor on this book, also brings a Roman Catholic perspective. And he wrote a book with the very intriguing title, For God and Profit, For God and Profit. And in this book, Greg shows how banking and finance serve the common good. Now, I speak from the Protestant tradition, and I would contend that the market system is the one form of resource allocation that has lifted literally millions of people out of poverty. It hasn't listed, lifted everyone out, but then not everyone has had the opportunity to live under what Adam Smith called the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. So you could argue, I think, as a matter of taxonomy, and I think this squares with what Dan said, that capitalism doesn't have a soul. It, it doesn't have a heart for the poor. But in that sense, neither the socialism or central planning have a soul or a heart for the poor. Uh, we do have some empirical tests of, of which economic system seems to care better for the poor. We can compare North Korea and South Korea. We can compare Hong Kong, mainland China, Argentina, Venezuela. Uh, and, and I think that offers some evidence that markets do more for the poor uh, than a system where you have state control over resource allocation. 
Now, if I can add, I know it's a long answer, but let me add one other thing on this topic that I think also ties in with what Dan said. And here I'm going to take the prerogative as being the, the old guy or the most senior person among the three of us. I have lived long enough in the academy to witness a remarkable reversal. And I want to comment on that. As I can remember, when I was first studying economics, the major criticism of capitalism, at least within economic context, is that it was inefficient. It was inefficient compared to central planning. The argument was, and I remember it well because I heard it many times, if you want more goods, you need a central plan. Now query, who thinks that anymore? Now, a very common criticism of capitalism is that it produces too many goods. So once within my lifetime, it was argued that capitalism didn't produce enough shoes or whatever. And now capitalism produces too many shoes. So I'll stop at that point, but I think there's an interesting confluence of what Dan said and what I said in response to what's a really important question. Is there something about markets versus central planning that have a deeper uh, concern for the poor, a, a soul, a compassionate element? Well, capitalism has gotten some bad marks. Uh, socialism, as an economic regime, has made a comeback in the past few years. We had a a political candidate for the presidency who openly identified as a socialist. I suspect many of your students now identify themselves as socialists or sympathetic to socialism in a way our students of a few years ago did not. By the way, I might say I taught at uh, George Mason Elder Scalia Law School, and I, and I would not say that of my students. <laughs> but I, I suspect – now, proponents of a basic tenet of socialism is that government ownership or control of business – or at least tight, very, very tight regulation, ensures equitable outcomes for individuals who might lose out in a more free market-oriented environment. Uh, in short, some people just don't have the talent to succeed in a rough and tumble of market competition. How would you respond to the claim that socialism is more consistent with Christian social norms, sometimes it's called a social, the so-called social gospel, than capitalism or free markets constrained by mere antitrust. So Alden, I've uh, written another book called Seven Books That Rock the Church, and one of my chapters in that book is dedicated to Christianity and Marxism. And of course, there, there have been many Christians, uh, Christians who I respect over the course of years, who think that Marxism or socialism is, is con consistent with or even compelled by a Christian worldview. Um, and it's not my view that Christianity compels necessarily any particular ec economic system. I do think, though, that Christianity has a very high regard for the individual. And for, for me, the, the key to a market-oriented society is the, the, the freedom of the individual to control uh, their own economic life, to make investments to make decisions, to care for their family. Um, you think of biblical stories. I think of one um, in 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, the story of Naboth's vineyard. So Naboth owns this vineyard and, and the king, King Ahab, a, a wicked king, covets Naboth's vineyard. And, and Naboth says, I won't sell you. This was inherited from my father's. I won't sell to you. And so Ahab and his scheming wife Jezebel have to resort to shenanigans to uh, bring false accusations against Naboth and have him killed uh, so that the king can expropriate this individual's property. And you know, there are many lessons in that story, but one of them is the idea of, of sort of the righteousness of, 
of of standing up even to a powerful person to to one who wants to expropriate your property because this has been your your heritage the thing that God has given to you so uh, I I do have uh, a very high regard for uh, for for property for the sanctity of contract and for the rights of the individual which I think are are, are drawn from my Christian worldview and I think the Bible speaks directly to all those things and also just to echo. Uh, at a more instrumental level, uh, what Ken said about the, the empirical evidence we have about the effects of market-oriented societies on, on the well-being of the very, very poor. No force in history has been more effective at lifting people out of poverty than market-oriented systems. When you think about a country like China, even, which uh, today is a mixed economy. There's still formerly a communist state, but has transitioned since 1995 towards a more market-oriented society. And up to 800 million people have been lifted out of abject poverty uh, to a higher standard of living because of relatively modest transitions towards a market economy. And so, again, I, like Ken, I think that the empirical evidence is overwhelmingly in support of the claim. That although, again, capitalism is not a perfect system, and it depends upon uh, the morality of those in it, that the system as a whole has great potential to enrich people's lives, give people opportunity, and to lift people out of poverty. And if, as Jesus did, we care about the well-being of the poor, then we should be concerned not only about theoretical utopian systems, but about the actual evidence that a particular system does or does not tend towards helping the poor. And I think capitalism has, has a very good track record on that. Alden, let me uh, just confess that the attraction to socialism by many students, including some of my own, is uh, somewhat baffling to me, you know, sort of where that came from and the explanation for it. I think it probably takes somebody who's not in my tribe, an economist, but perhaps a, a cultural anthropologist to explain this uh, new affinity for socialism. Uh, just as, a, as an observer and a reader of some of this literature, socialism does seem to offer almost a, a, a heaven on earth, something eschatological uh, that, that some of my students might be attracted to. And then along comes capitalism, along comes uh, people teaching economics, and, and capitalism offers an invisible hand. And it offers the pursuit of self-interest under a regime of law. And there's just not a lot of romance in that. There's not a lot that grabs people's uh, emotions. But to come back to something that Dan mentioned, uh, as to this claim that socialism is more consistent with social concerns, um, I don't see that in the Bible. Now, as Dan mentioned, some people do. I don't. Uh, Jesus's followers owned private property. And if they shared their possessions, uh, it, from my exegesis of the scriptures, they did this voluntarily. They didn't do it under a regime of central planning. All the examples of charity and concern for the poor that Jesus gave were voluntary. They, they were done out of obedience to religious precepts. In that sense, they were not voluntary. They were they were precepts of behavior that was consistent with the faith, but it was not out of a government mandate. To my mind, one of the most profound of Jesus' teachings is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, it is a very sobering parable to read if you're a follower of Jesus and think, how do I match up with that? Where, where, do I, where does my life mimic that of the Good Samaritan? But Jesus didn't commend the Good Samaritan because this, this man from Samaria followed the instructions of the IRS 
to help the man who fell among thieves. Uh, the, the Good Samaritan wasn't ordered to do this by someone from the Galilean governing authorities. He did this out of a sense of compassion, out of a sense of love for others, out of a, call it a social concern, but it's not a social concern that came out of a, a, a economic system that you might call capitalism or socialism. We also learn, by the way, that parable about the servant who buried the talent. There, there, you can actually find something in gospel parables about the, the virtues of actually uh, using property and using funds wisely to, to increase them. Okay, so talking about history now, the Sherman Act dates back to 1890, supposedly the first place of uh, American Antitrust, Washington, D.C., to Congress passing the Sherman Act. But there's a much older anti-monopoly or pro-competition tradition. How, how did Christianity contribute to it? So, Alden, you know, Christianity uh, has had a lot to do with anti-monopoly, going really to the sort of the origins of sort of uh, uh, the, the, the Christian state in Rome. Uh, you see a succession of Roman emperors, uh, Christian Roman emperors, uh, issuing edicts intended to fight things like cartel behavior uh, and monopolizing of markets. Uh, in the medieval period, the scholastic um, uh, Catholic scholars uh, were always working through ideas about economics, often under the rubric of just price theory. But one, one sort of uh, corollary of just price theory was the idea that a monopoly price was an unjust price. Uh, now, I, I don't think that the, 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 the scholastics fully worked out a, an economic theory uh, the, the way we would today, uh, certainly on the terms that we, that we would, but, but they, they, they certainly understood the phenomenon of, of monopoly and, and, and prices uh, contributing to, to harms to people uh, who buy things. And so yeah, they were very attuned to this. Um, and, and then, you know, the Protestant reformers, uh, Martin Luther, um, and I didn't really know this until I started doing research for this chapter that Ken and I wrote, uh, but Martin Luther um, wrote extensively on, on economics and particularly on competition and economics. Uh, Martin Luther uh, wrote at, at length about um, people cornering markets in order to be monopolists. Uh, and he even wrote about something that, that, that Ken has uh, been a landmark figure in, which is predatory pricing law. Uh, he, he describes predatory pricing, the practice of, of pricing so cheaply that your competitors can't compete, uh, and so they're forced to exit the market, and, and then you can recoup in the market. I mean, this is, this is classic uh, contemporary predatory pricing theory. Um, so, and, and he thought this was abominable. He thought the people who were who were predators um, should be ostracized, should be should be punished. So, um, it, it's really not the case that even coming up to the time of the Protestant Reformation, that that you know that, that Christian thinkers are are unaware of of the very kinds of questions uh, that we deal with today. And maybe I should let Ken pick up the story with with Adam Smith. Yeah, I'll just mention 1890 was a very good year for antitrust, but under a, a different name, not using the term antitrust. As Dan indicated, there's a long tradition uh, in in the Christian faith with, with concerns about monopoly, price fixing, and as I say in our chapter, we give a lot of examples of this. Uh, in terms of Calvinism, I think one of the most interesting parts of our chapter is showing the link between Adam Smith and Christian teaching. Now, Adam Smith, most people I think would agree, is the founder of modern economics. And Dan and I show in our chapter how much Adam Smith admired 
not just was influenced by, but admired Presbyterian clergy. And these were clergy who wrote about a lot of things, including issues of markets and economics. And, uh, and these Presbyterians, of course, were all products of the Reformation, and they in particular were influenced by John Calvin. Interesting. So can you, uh, Dan uh, and Ken, say something about how Calvinism, or more generally Protestant moral theology, what do they have to say about antitrust policy? Is there anything else you'd want to add? I, I could just say one of the important contributions uh, that, that Calvin made, of course, you know, Max Weber refers to Calvin as the, as the father of capitalism uh, because of the work ethic. But another thing that, that, um, that, that Calvin gives us is to sort of break the medieval suspicion of, of economic investment as usurious, right? So there is an old biblical approach, and, and, and Islam has one, and many, many uh faith traditions have prohibitions on usury. Um, but what Calvin, I think, showed was that usury uh, meant a sort of abusive lending to poor people or exploitive lending to poor people. It didn't mean, it didn't mean that you couldn't make investments uh, and get returns on those investments. And so the idea that the economic system that allows people to put their capital into risk, but into investment and, and get returns from that is, of course, the very engine uh, that, that, that drives market-oriented societies. And, and again, although Calvin is not the only person to make that observation, uh, I think Calvin was important in ascribing a positive connotation to uh, lending and investment of money for productive as opposed to exploitative uses. Yeah, and just to kind of put an academic footnote on what Dan said, this, this connection uh, is still explored by economists. Um, ben Friedman, his new book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, very important piece of scholarship. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey, another economist, uh, has done important work on what she calls the bourgeois virtues, which McCloskey recognizes to be essentially Christian virtues. Right. One thinks of the uh, Dutch master paintings of burghers and, and society. A lot of wealth was created in uh the Netherlands, uh, by Calvinists who believe in those virtues. So let me, let me turn now from Protestantism back to, to uh, not to the Middle Ages, but to contemporary Catholicism. In his 1991 encyclical, Centesimus Annus, which means 100 years, basically referring to an encyclical 100 years earlier on the so-called social theology of the Catholic Church by then Pope Leo XIII, Pope John Paul II who, of course, saw communism at first hand, reflected on uh, socialism and capitalism in light of the fall of the Soviet Union. He wrote, quote, We have seen it is unacceptable to say that the, that the defeat of so-called real socialism leaves capitalism as the only model of economic organization. It is necessary to break down the barriers and monopolies which leave so many countries on the margins of development and to provide all individuals and nations with the basic conditions which will enable them to share in development. Now, obviously, both of you are Protestants, but as a Roman Catholic, I'm curious what your reaction to that quote would be. Well, I'll, I'll lead off on that. Uh, uh, first of all, thanks for calling that quote to my attention. I think I'd read that earlier, but not recently. Um, not meaning any disrespect, I find the quotation from Pope John Paul II cryptic in a way. Uh, that may be my deficiency rather than the text. No doubt about it, there are monopolies that leave, uh, uh, quoting the Pope, many countries on the margins of development. 
But from my understanding, often these monopolies are state-owned or state-sanctioned. That, that is, they're not the kind of monopolies that antitrust can undo or unravel. To my mind, more problematic in these countries is simply the absence of a basic rule of law that protects property rights. And if property rights are not protected, markets can't function, really, because the incentive that people have, going back to, back to what Dan said about investment, the incentive you have to invest in, in property is diminished, whether that property is agricultural, manufacturing, trade, uh, or, or even human capital. I just add to that, um, the, the idea that there are barriers that create monopolies is certainly true. And I think, as Ken said, uh, the, the most durable and pernicious of those barriers are, are ones that governments impose. So I think, for example, of the relationship between international trade and, and human welfare. And to me, international trade is just an extension of what we've been talking about, the, the imperative to allow people to, uh, to sell their products and services uh, abroad. Uh, that is is hugely beneficial to human welfare and well-being as well, and and, and injects uh, an element of competition to market. Um, and we kind of I think lost a little bit the thread between trade and and monopoly. But if, if you go back to 1912, for example, the presidential election, like, trade and antitrust were the central economic issues in that election, and they were and they were always linked questions. The idea that um, that part of what it meant to 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 bolster monopoly was to put up high barriers and tariffs that limited foreign competition. So uh, to the extent that what we're suggesting is that we need to create an international economic order that allows people to flourish and profit from, from trade broadly defined, I agree entirely. Uh, and, and there on the finger, uh, the blame on, on governments, often corrupt governments, that, that limit competition by, by making it possible for, for people to, to exit or enter and for goods or services to exit and enter. Right. I think that's, that's a good point. And I think just to put things in context, you know, it's interesting. Some uh, Catholic figures came from countries which had a lot of corruption and which had governance associated with corruption and not protecting pop property rights. So sometimes there's a danger that based upon one's upbringing, one might have the idea that capitalism somehow is a special form of cronyism, which of course is a distortion of what, ca of, of what pre-market capitalism is. So that's something also to consider. Now, John Paul II is in encyclical also specifically addressed whether capitalism should be the goal of countries making efforts to re rebuild their economy and society. He wrote, quote, The answer is complex. If by capitalism is meant an economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property, and the resulting responsibility for the means of production, as well as free human creativity in the economic sector, then the answer is certainly in the affirmative even though it would perhaps be more appropriate to speak of a business economy, market economy, or simply free economy. But if by capitalism is meant a system in which freedom in the economic sector is not circumscribed within a strong judicial framework which places it at the service of human freedom in its totality and which sees it as a particular aspect of that freedom, the core of which is ethical and religious, then the reply is negative. What are your thoughts about that? Long quote. Well, I can just jump in and say, uh, if if the, the the thing that we shouldn't have is 
uh, is capitalism unrestrained by a strong juridical framework? I agree. We don't have that. Uh, I mean, we're nowhere near having a, a wild west order in which people can do whatever they want to in the economic sphere. I mean, we have we have labor laws. We have consumer protection laws. We have antitrust laws. Uh, we have environmental laws. We have all kinds of, of, of constraints on, on human behavior in the, in the, the business sphere. Um, so, and I, and I agree. I mean, I, we, we can argue about the, the particulars of those, of those regulations, and, and certainly regulations can in, impede uh, effective competition in, in certain circumstances. But I, I don't disagree at all uh, that, uh, that capitalism, uh, like any other form of human behavior, should be constrained and, and, and organized by law. Um, but, but to Ken's earlier point, I mean, to me, law obviously plays an important role uh, in a market society. Uh, protecting property rights, protecting the freedom of contract are, are two essential um, functions of law with, without which you, you can't have a functioning market order. So, so again, I, 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 I don't disagree at all with the idea that, that a, market, a market system requires the rule of law and requires regulation. The question is, what kinds of regulations are conducive to to human flourishing in, in that environment? Yeah, all, all, all I'll add to that, uh, Alden, is to, uh, to second what Dan said. I like the perspective that Dan brings to the quote. I, I also like this statement from the Pope better than the first one that you read. Right. Well, it, it's interesting. As I said, having done some work with foreign competition antitrust agencies and hearing about the corruption that are governed, the special favors handed out and so forth. Again, I think it, it's something that we have the advantage of having grown up in a relatively free rule of law society. And those who haven't seen it at first hand really, I think, are sometimes have inherent suspicions about what they think capitalism is because they don't really fully understand what it can be under under the rule of law. Now, since you're both Protestants, let's get to a perhaps a leading Protestant, or I'd say Christian apologist, one of the leading uh, apologists of the last century, C.S. Lewis, author of the Narnia books, which are quite well known. Now, I might mention also, it's quite interesting because uh, he, uh, C.S. Lewis was brought to Christianity. He had been an agnostic or an atheist by a fellow uh, academic at Oxford, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and both had fought in World War One. It was Tolkien, who was a Roman Catholic, convinced Lewis about the, the value and the worth of Christianity, and they had a long-term friendship. So it's quite interesting. Talk about ecumenical uh, agreement. Uh, Tolkien and uh, and Lewis were, were were fast friends. But but getting back to Lewis, uh, Ken, you have a paper entitled "C.S. Lewis and Freedom." Christianity's most famous apologist meets Adam Smith, in which you argue there's a strong correlation between the views of Smith and Lewis on ant economics. So would C.S. Lewis have been a fan of antitrust? Well, first of all, with regard to Lewis, um, I think a lot of Christians and non-Christians would agree that he's one of the most important defenders of the Christian faith. And I, I was very much influenced by Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, uh, in my own coming to faith, and that led me to start reading other things by Lewis, the Narnia tales that you mentioned, the screw tape letters. And then I started reading uh, stuff that was not the common books, papers, letters, and so on. And what I found in Lewis was a profound distrust of central planning. 
Now, now he didn't use the jargon of the antitrust economist or the antitrust lawyer. He didn't write about free markets or monopolies or cartels, but he did make statements like this. And let me quote one, possibly two of them. And I'm quoting Lewis here. Is there any possibility of getting the welfare state's honey and avoiding the sting? Question mark. Let us make no mistake about the sting. To live his life in his own way, to call his house his castle, to enjoy the fruits of his own labor, to educate his children as his conscience directs, to save for their prosperity after his death. These are wishes deeply ingrained in civilized man. Close quote. Now, I've read a lot of Lewis. I never found Lewis to use the term monopoly but he did refer to robber barons. He actually referred to robber barons. And, and he believed that robber barons were less of a threat to individuals, to ordinary citizens, than the Leviathan state. So let me uh, burden the, our, us with one more quote here. Lewis writes, of all the tyrannies, now that's quite a statement just from the start, of all the tyrannies, and this is a guy who wrote the screw tape letters. He knows a lot about tyrannies and sin. A tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. And then he says why. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Now, I take these quotes to mean Lewis, very thoughtful Christian, would be very sympathetic to what Adam Smith called an obvious and simple system of natural liberty and, and to the role of government to keep markets free so that the state didn't have to control the economy directly. Now, maybe I'm taking some liberties with Lewis here, maybe finding things that I wanted to find, but I don't think so. I think that's a fair reading of these two quotes and, and other quotes that I found in Lewis's writings. Well, quite interesting. And certainly it's your comments, Ken, I think are consistent with the studies in the last half century on uh, public choice and, so, so some, and rent-seeking. And so some of the greatest harms to liberty are brought about by government regulations. For instance, uh, occupation, excessive occupation, licensing, other regulations that prevent people from earning a living or that prevent them from, from being able to acquire property in various ways. So certainly, and the problem with those, as some antitrust judges and professors have commented, the problem with those regulatory limits on liberty is that the market can't twiddle, twiddle uh, them down, so to speak. They're permanent until the law or regulation is changed. So in, indeed, in terms of limiting competition, I certainly would agree that there's uh, government is often guilty of some of the worst uh, depredation, shall we say, against uh, the individual and individual liberty. Now, let's go to uh, the classroom. Since you're both excellent professors, I had the honor of uh, visiting uh, uh, University of Michigan and uh, giving a lecture, talking to Dan there. I, uh, I missed my opportunity to visit Professor Elzinger when I was at the Federal Trade Commission. Who knows? Maybe someday I'll make it down. But you're veteran teachers of antitrust and teach it from an economic perspective. 
but since as we've seen your your uh, believing Christians, so how does your Christian faith influence the way you teach? Well, I'll say I, I hope that my Christian faith influences everything I do, from the way I dress in the morning to the way I drive my car to the way I take care of my my, my family uh, and to the way I conduct myself in the classroom. But but more specifically, um, even though I, I certainly don't walk into my classroom at the University of Michigan and and, and teach antitrust from a, a Christian perspective. Um, one thing that I care about deeply um, is what I, I tell my students is the existential questions. Why are we doing what we're doing? And, and, and this is something we start with on day one. And it's something that we come back to again and again throughout the semester. What are the purposes of antitrust law? And, and how are those things rooted in our own worldviews? Uh, and, and I certainly don't tell my students they have to have any particular account of this. I, in fact, I encourage them to explore many different accounts of why we have antitrust uh, and what we want to do. And, and those are morally significant questions. And so for me, um, everything comes back to one worldview, one's view about uh, the, the, the place one lives, the community one occupies, one's duty to one's neighbor, as, as Ken mentioned, you know, the ultimate question in the story of the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan is, who is my neighbor? To whom do I owe duties uh, of care and charity and love? Um, and so all, all of those questions are very much implicated in the existential question, what is antitrust? Is it a consumer welfare prescription? What does consumer welfare mean? Is it about just deadweight losses or wealth transfers, dynamic efficiency, static efficiency? Are there other values? Is it about protecting the small businessman? Uh, is it about uh, protecting labor? All of these things are existential questions in, in antitrust. Uh, and, and even though I, I certainly wouldn't uh, suggest my, to my students that they have to think about it in a particular way, I certainly think about those things uh, stemming from my own Christian worldview. Yeah, Alden, as you may recall, I teach my antitrust policy class Socratically. So in direct response to your question, how does Christianity affect what I'm like in the classroom? It may seem like Jesus doesn't affect my teaching, but Socrates does. But apart from classroom pedagogy, uh, the Christian faith really does affect how I teach or, or, or I want it to. And here's how. To me, one of the most sobering stories about Jesus is that he washed the feet of his disciples. He actually washed the feet of his disciples. It wasn't the other way around where he, their, their rabbi, their teacher, had his students serve them in this manner. And I keep a picture of Jesus washing the feet of a disciple in my office to remind me that the, the vertical relationship between, and my, between me and my students is with me at the bottom, not with me at the top. And that metaphorically, I'm, I'm to be a foot washer. Uh, I'm to be willing to serve my students. I do that with many failures and haltingly at times, but that's where Jesus really meets me as a teacher is to say, Ken, uh, are, are you in some sense uh, willing to wash the feet of your students? Right. And that that's very good. You know, it reminds me in lots of liturgically uh, reminded uh, minded churches, in some Episcopal churches, Catholic church on, on, on Holy Thursday, of course, the priest washes the feet often of uh, altar servers or other young or just men in the congregation, and again, shows the role as, uh, uh, as a servant. And, uh, and I think good teachers, you know, by all experiences, having seen them, good teachers have to be empathetic and should be willing to listen 
uh, and not cater in a bad way, but listen and and understand the concerns of students, and that's that that's gratifying. Well, let's move back to, of course, you're wanting to sell this great book, which Dan has edited and to which both of you contribute a chapter. Now, you're the, Dan, you're the co-editor of the book, in which a chapter with Ken appears. So, uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the book. First, give us a full title. And tell us when it is due out. Sure. So the book is entitled Christianity and Market Regulation. Uh, As you mentioned, Alden, at the beginning, it's uh, being published by Cambridge University Press. It's part of their Christianity and Law series, uh, which is edited by John Witte at Emory University. Um, And it should be coming out any day. We've uh, submitted the final page proofs. And so um, I expect to see it uh, in print uh, any day now. Terrific. So where did you get the idea for the book? So this was uh, uh, came to me as as, as thinking about uh, the Christianity and Law series, which I've contributed uh, some chapters and other books, but that uh, I wasn't aware of of any effort to think sort of again ecumenically across the Christian faith um, about um, market regulation uh, and especially the law of market regulation from a Christian perspective. And so uh, Sam Gregg and I collaborated on pulling together a group of authors. Uh, we are excited to have, have reached people from various different uh, professions, uh, economists and law professors, uh, people who, who have sort of more business experience versus or, or political experience, um, but also uh, people from around the world. We have authors from the United States, authors from Europe, authors from Australia, authors from South America, uh, and again, from across the faith tradition. So we, we have uh, Protestants and, and, uh, and Catholics. Um, who who are coming at this from from a broadly defined uh, Christian perspective? Yeah, excellent. And what are some of the rest of the chapters dealing with? So we have chapters on the morality of markets, on the common good, on public choice theory, on corporate law, entrepreneurship, um, financial regulation, bankruptcy, patents, and price control. So really, a very broad set of of, of topics from a very broad set of authors. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it's, it's very interesting to look at how law, and certainly even religious law, influences market regulation. You know, in dealing with uh, some officials from the Islamic world, a number of them were interested in studying and finding how antitrust could be made, and indeed was consistent with Islamic law, with so-called Sharia law, and that's quite interesting. So I think it, it's not, as I say, Christianity, but also it may be that there's that there are ways of showing the consistency between other, say, uh, certainly in the monotheistic religions, those traditions and uh, and, and antitrust and competition. So uh, now, uh, Ken, you've written mystery novels with um, another former professor of mine, the late professor William Bright, who's a, a fine man, and... Uh, a very uh, good author. And mystery awful novels often have a surprise ending or end in a surprise. Is there anything like a surprise that readers of this new book might find? Uh, in terms of it's a surprise, Dan, I'll start with you again. You know, I think the surprise to me, Alden, after having worked through this book, uh, is that it hadn't been written before. Uh, because, you know, as, as we started by saying, it, or you started by saying, it's not obvious at the outset that that having a conversation about antitrust uh, in Christianity or or bankruptcy or corporate law in Christianity will, will go very far. 
But there are so many questions once you start thinking through it uh, and so much historical material to bring into the conversation. I think the surprising thing to me is that that I, in, in my career as a scholar, haven't encountered anything like this before. Yeah. Alden, uh, first of all, I'll just give a plug to Dan. Dan also is a mystery writer. That's not what joined us together on this chapter, but uh, we are unusual academics in that we both are fond of the genre and we both have uh, uh, contributed to it. Uh, the chapter that Dan and I wrote, I can't speak to the other chapters, but I think Dan makes an interesting point. It's it's sort of a mystery that this book hasn't been written before because there's so much content to it. But with regard to our chapter, it doesn't have a, a surprise ending like an Agatha Christie mystery where the reader is thinking, oh, my word, I should have known that the, it was the cousin who did it. I just didn't see it at the time. But I do think of all the people who believe economics is, uh, to use Carlyle's term, the dismal science, or all the people who think economics is just math and graphs, I think it will surprise uh, readers of our chapter, the chapter that Dan and I did, to learn that the dismal science, uh, as it looks at issues of competition and monopoly, can actually be informed by, it can be illuminated by uh, biblical principles. That may be a surprise to some of our readers. Well, it's a, it, it's a happy finding, happy surprise. I, I uh, wish you a lot of good luck. I, I imagine you've uh, you've signed up for all of the talk shows to to hawk the book uh, and 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 can make it a top Amazon bestseller. But we sh- we shall see. It would be it certainly de- deserves to be widely read. And I know Ken, you've also written essays on as a, as Dan has on. Uh, religion from an e- economics perspective. And uh, to me, it's, it's, it's always very interesting to see that uh, scholars, there's some associations of Catholic and also Christian scientists, that scholars can bring Christianity and a Christian perspective to their work. Uh, fascinating. Well, let me thank you very much for your time. Two great professors and great human beings and uh, great scholars. And I think, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. And I think uh, I've certainly learned a lot. And I hope you in the audience have as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information. Thank you.